0: Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Professor of Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation.
1: So um, welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins, and we're really excited to have Adira Holkower here today, and she's going to be talking to us about the dignity of risk. Adira knew early in her life that she wanted to be in public service. After graduation from Stern College for Women and the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law, she first found her calling as a legal aid attorney representing abused and neglected children. In this job, she experienced firsthand how easily vulnerable people in traumatic circumstances can lose their individuality and ability to advocate for themselves and systems intended to support them. She got her master's degree in bioethics from Columbia University and now Adira is the chief of the bioethics consultation service at Montefiore Medical Center and an assistant professor of epidemiology and population health at the Albert Einstein. So very, you're very, very welcome, Madeira, and thanks so much for for being here with us. Thank you so much for having
2: me. I'm excited.
3: Yeah, and welcome uh, to our podcast, and it's great to have you. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about um, what you do, a little bit about your background, and why you decided to uh, go into this type of field?
2: Sure, absolutely. So... um, Back in 2007, I had a a couple of incidents where I had some like weird tingling in my body and in particular places, and I wound up being diagnosed with a chronic illness and entering into a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. And as an attorney, I was shocked when I received the informed consent. It was 22 pages. It actually wasn't terribly difficult to understand, but the volume of it. And I i was starting to think, how does this come to be? How does human subject research come to be? How do these informed consents get written? And I was super curious about it. And I learned about institutional review boards. So I decided to volunteer as a community member on an institutional review, review board. And for at that point, for me, bioethics was really research ethics. And I was... Absolutely fascinated by my experience on the IRB and thinking about human subject research. And one day I was walking around the hospital where I was working and they had pamphlets about a master's in bioethics program. And I thought, wait a minute, this isn't a, like this is a whole field, like this is something people do. And I was deep into my law career at that point. And I did one of those things that. I'm a person who definitely shies away from change. And yet the things that have been most rewarding in my life have been things that I haven't been given a real thought to as a, or maybe I should say I haven't stressed, overly stressed and overly analyzed. And I thought, this is awesome. I want a master's in bioethics. And I decided to go back to school while I was working full time. So I went to Columbia University and I did my master's degree while doing full time attorney work. And I had always said I would never leave legal aid unless I found something that felt equally to be kind of a calling to me and equally important. And clinical ethics work, when I learned about the field of bedside ethics, it it had that, I, I can't, I almost can't describe it. It was like I learned about it and I heard people talking about it and I was like, I'm supposed to be doing that thing. Like, that's, that's what I should be doing. And so I set out to get a job in clinical ethics, and I was extraordinarily lucky that Montefiore, um, which was Montefiore's clinical ethics service was founded by Nancy Dubler, who is an attorney herself. And they have a history of being open to all different types of um Disciplines serving as clinical ethicists, and Montfier took a chance on me. Um, specifically, Hannah Lippman, who was who used to hold the position that I have I hold now, and I came in as a clinical ethicist and eventually became director of the service. That's fantastic
1: and um, interesting that you initially sort of heard about the research aspects that you know bioethics is is so crucial to, but then ended up um, in the clinical realm, which is. Amazing. And it's quite unusual, as you say, for JD to be doing clinical ethics consultations. But interesting that in your institution, that was a precedent. You uh, outlined in one of your articles, which I want to get to in a minute. But first of all, can you sort of um, tell us more about this concept of dignity of risk and kind of what patients it could apply to what circumstances we
2: we should all be thinking about this concept? Sure. So when I was writing my uh, master's thesis, I wrote it about bioethics and how bioethics should be paying attention to issues um, that the issue overall of homelessness and that there isn't a lot of scholarship in that area. And during my research, I came across this article from 1972, written by a Sociologist named Robert Persky called the dignity of risk and the mentally retarded. So obviously, that title now doesn't hold up. But the 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 body and like the compelling nature of that article to me is. Um, is as relevant today as when he wrote it in 1972. And it's relevant to all all different kinds of populations. So basically, he took a trip to Scandinavia. And he looked around and he saw that there was a completely different environment for the intellectually and developmentally disabled, that instead of building institutions and closing individuals in they were integrated into society, that people with intellectual disabilities held jobs, they were in relationships, they were doing all the things that pe- typical people were doing. And he said, why aren't we doing this in the United States? We have a, a just a totally opposite perspective of trying to keep people so safe by containing them. Right, so you can't go out. We make safe rooms, we make safe homes, we make safe jobs, we make safe interactions. And what are we actually doing by creating this overly safe environment? We are actually robbing people of the dignity that is inherent in the ability to make your own choices, to take risks in life, um, to choose to do something that might not be from categorically from the outside, the safest thing. But really, when you engage in it, it's part of your identity. So it, for example, I always when I talk about the dignity of risk to people, I kind of break down all the risks that they might have taken in a single day, or in the year of their life, right? Did you get married? Did you take a new job? Did you cross against a red light? Are you eating foods that aren't good for you? What are all those micro risks, right? We'll call them that actually determine who you are. They are part of your identity formation. They're part of your identity preservation. And when we take away from individuals the ability to engage in those risks, we actually erode at their autonomy. And that—that that is sort of the overarching principle of the dignity of risk. And many authors, especially in Australia and New Zealand, actually it's much more integrated, um, have started looking, scholars have started looking at the dignity of risk and saying, how do we... How do we apply that to how we engage with the mentally ill? How do we look at that as we engage in safe discharge planning for um, patients, which is my the area that I look at the most um, and was written about in 2015 by Debjani Mukherjee, who is actually the editor of the the issue of the journal that I published in about the dignity of risk. But looking at all of those populations and saying, where are we threatening the autonomy of individuals by denying them the ability to engage in a life that has risk. And so that, to me, is sort of the overarching principle and how I how I understand it and how I apply it. um, If that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's a great
1: description.
3: Yeah, thank you uh, so much, Adira. Um, It is kind of out of the box thinking because we always try to avoid risk. But then avoiding risk, um, in itself is limiting Um, as you alluded to earlier, one's autonomy. So it's accepting, of course, the benefits, but also accepting the risk that is the fullness of autonomy and the fullness of competency, as you um, illustrated earlier, um, describing this really interesting field. So my question, uh, follow-up question to you, is that you um, wrote an article, of course, about this concept um, and the importance of the dignity of risk, um, when other ethical principles do not adequately capture the concepts we can, uh, should consider in a clinical case. Uh, can you outline uh, for our listeners uh, what was involved in that uh, specific case? I know this was um, an academic journal um, in the, um, entitled, A Place of His Own Applying Dignity of Risk to Bioethics Consultation. Um, and this was Um, under John Hopkins University Press Perspectives in Biology and Medicine. Um, So for those who want to read and look it up, um, this is an awesome piece, and we highly suggest for you to uh, read and share with your students. But back to my question, uh, can you um, uh, give an example to our listeners about a particular case uh, you'd like to share?
2: Sure. So... The case that I highlighted in that article is um, the case of we'll call him Mr. A, who was a, would I, I, not sure exactly because I, I de-identified his age so I'm not sure exactly what age that I gave him in that article I can't remember so let's say mid 70s um, he had been um, street homeless which is a which is a a category of homeless that's used when housing and urban development does their um, assessment of ho- homeless individuals or unhoused individuals. They take a look at um, it's different categories of people who are sheltered, people who are street homeless. So he had been street homeless for almost two decades, and he came into the hospital with bilateral at- leg ulcers. And they, they needed cleaning up but he didn't have any significant health related issue or acute health related issue after maybe one or two days but the team took a look and said you know what he's 75 years old he has come to our ED 33 times in the last you know year and a half he is definitely doesn't fully have capacity like there's he can't really describe the risks and dangers of being, um, of being unhoused and what he faces on the streets. And, you know, may, it's going to starting to get a little bit cool outside. It just doesn't feel right for him to be, to just let him leave the hospital, which is exactly what he wanted to do. And so they called Bioethics because they had an individual, Mr. A, who was saying, absolutely not, I do, will not go to a nursing home. Um, but the team really felt compelled that they're that their duty of beneficence was a duty to have him placed in a nursing home. And so we were called to do that consult, and I came to his bedside, and I remarked on this in the letter, and I don't know why it's so compelling to me, but the cleanliness, he had the whitest teeth I'd ever seen. And I immediately thought, how 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 was he able to sort of maintain this level of cleanliness while living um, in such a with such day-to-day uncertainty about where he would be and how he would get food, let alone shower or attend to his hygiene. And I sat next to his bed, and he was such a lovely individual, and I got to know him a little bit. And he talked to me about his history, um, his family, about how he used to do charity work with his mother and they would feed people who needed food and now how ashamed he was that he was a person who needed to be on the receiving end of that kind of grace and that kind of charity and he talked to me about what his routine was every day um that he would wake up in the morning that he would go and try to search for an apartment it was always that was his his goal was to to have a place of his own where he would live. And so his day-to-day life was, how do I survive? How do I get food? Where do I sleep? And how do I find this apartment of my own, this place to call my own? And he also shared that he had like a strong religious background, but he wouldn't go to church because he never had a clean suit and a a hat to wear to church, and he wanted to be dressed appropriately. Um, And I received such this really rich narrative from him. And Could he absolutely articulate and say, the magic words, I always think we look for these magic words. And I'm often believe that the magic words are to make us feel better, and less about sort of the actual circumstances. And so we're he did he say the magic words, like, I completely understand that there are risks to my health and safety if I return to the streets, but that is really where I want to go. And it represents my values and my preferences. And, you know, he didn't have sort of the magical phrases that we sort of imbue, or we ask people to be imbued with, where we say, you, oh, that's it. You have autonomy. You have capacity because you said those things. And he didn't have those magical words. But he had a story and a rich narrative that about what it is that he did and what he's been doing for the last decade. And is it heartbreaking to me to imagine him waking up every day, searching for food, sleeping, sitting up because he wanted to be hypervigilant and he didn't have a place to sleep? Do I wish that life, for him? No. Do I recognize that he has made a life in a particular way through a particular routine that he values at least above a nursing home placement? Yes. And so we began to engage with the team about this question of how do we really define beneficence? Can we take this narrow concept? And, and if you look at, like, some of the definitions of beneficence, they do include some broader concepts beyond just safety of the body. My experience is that the interpretation of beneficence has always been one about, like, how do we keep the person medically safe, physically safe? And, my, and we started talking with the team and saying, can we expand this notion of beneficence? Can we think about something that goes beyond just safety of the body to the security of the individual and the, the, and and into the valuing of the story of this individual, what, what principles, what can we draw on that helps us maybe either expand this notion of beneficence or think differently about what we consider beneficent care. And we introduce this principle of the dignity of risk and saying, even though he might not be fully autonomous, because he's been determined to lack capacity, by denying him this life that he has chosen to live and these risks that he is open to taking, we are eroding out what is there of his autonomy. And I sensed when we started discussing this as a team that there was actually a lot of relief in the room. The team was looking for a kind of language to describe what they were feeling because they weren't feeling like this is the best plan ever. He's going to be in nursing home and he is going to be so happy. He doesn't recognize like how happy he'll be or how secure he'll be. And if we can just get him here, like it's like the best thing ever. Right. That wasn't the team's position. The team felt we have a duty to this individual, but we don't know what that duty is. And we feel like the duty is to keep him as physically safe as possible because we went into medicine, right, to heal people's bodies. Um, but when they were introduced to this language and this idea of the dignity of risk, and they were able to add that to their vocabulary and their vo- perspective on how to support this patient, there was a feeling in the room that shifted. Where And it wasn't without its hesitancy, right? It wasn't without its concern, like, what might happen to him next? Like, what if next time it's not just cellulitis? What if next time it is something more significant. And we've put him at risk for that. And that is a very important thing I think about when I when we are applying dignity of risk to recognize that, yes, we are saying we want to honor this person by allowing them to engage in risk. But it's not an unlimited, it shouldn't be at such a level of risk that we would be betraying that person or abandoning them. It has to be balanced if that if that makes sense in the way that i said it. So it's not just like you say okay dignity of risk, you go out, you do the thing you need to do whatever it is and if you get hurt you get hurt because now we've honored your we've honored your autonomy or we've honored your your strong preferences and your your ability to choose the 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 risks that you take. We can't we we can't approach it that way. I think what it becomes is another tool in the toolbox of the clinical ethicist to say can this apply in this case? Are we looking at the totality of the circumstances of this patient's life? Are we contextualizing this patient's choices within the narrative and the scope of their their lived experiences? Or are we somehow shutting that off and pretending or and not engaging with that because we're so worried about their safety that we can't see beyond our conception of safety?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And um, before, um, My friend and colleague Amelia uh, jumps in, Uh, it was just interesting uh, to hear your experience about uh, the dynamic of medical nerve, which I also heard about listening to the patient or allowing the patient to express themselves in a way that will really provide that context, uh, otherwise that you wouldn't have if you didn't have that communication, um, really just seeing where that patient is and what really made that patient feel safe. Um, outside of the boundaries, as you said, of we traditionally understanding beneficence to be in that principle, right? So I think it's really um, imperative uh, that we look into what the patient really wants, right? I know that sounds like out the box, right? It really isn't, right? But really listening and having that context of their own lived experience in their particular illness and then try our best as um, the sound that you and your team have to really accommodate that patient uh, based off of their lived experience and their needs, even though their autonomy autonomy and co- uh, competency is somewhat um, diminished based off of their illness. So I thought that was really important uh, key of what you mentioned, and I just wanted to uh, reassert that. Um, so uh, thank you for sharing that case. Really interesting.
2: I could imagine somebody listening to this podcast and saying, this is a 75-year-old man with limited with with at least a question about his his capacity because if he was fully capacitated we would have um it, like this concept wouldn't have come to us right we would have just said okay you know be on your way um and say are you abandoning this individual with by uh, through honoring his choices and his and and using the dignity of risk are you actually turning around and saying or turning a blind eye to the to the actual risks, right? There are a lot of risks that there are health risks, there are risks of violence, there are a lot of risks that come to to people who are um homeless and um and i I think the important thing that I would want to say to that is there are health implications also to keeping to the nursing home circumstances, like placing somebody in nursing home, right? So it's not just um, that you're looking, oh, well, he would have a roof over his head, he would have access to meals, and maybe he would have access to companionship in the nursing home, and that those things don't actually come with risk. They do come with risk. They come with risk of deconditioning and decompensating. Taking a person and depriving them of their liberty is not without health risks as well. It's not just an emotional issue like, oh, he'll be disappointed, right? It also can have direct impacts on an individual's cognitive abilities, uh, their cognitive status, their mental status, their... their um, they become like less mobile, more chances of, you know, like he was, he was ambulatory. So less, not, not necessarily ulcers, but, you know, the less he moves, the his, the more um, deconditioned he might become, especially being somewhere where he can't attempt to accomplish the greatest goal that he wants to accomplish, which is finding a place of his own.
1: You know, thank you. That is an amazing case. And I really enjoyed your article. So, the dignity of risk though does need to be, it's not like something that kind of sits there every time the patient comes in, we just apply this. Obviously it changes with each change that the patient undergoes. And I know with that particular patient, unfortunately he did come in again. So can you tell us then about sort of the, you know, um, at the time that was a, you know, really appropriate and then things change. So then you you needed to pivot then and how you were assessing his discharge?
2: Yeah. I'm really glad you asked that question. So he did come in a few months later. It was the height of winter, and he had a contusion to his head and a broken finger. He had no memory of how he had received them. Um, it, it looked like something that had been part of a fight, like something inflicted. And we, at that point, felt that the information had changed, right? That risk-benefits calculus had had been altered. And if I remember correctly, I don't think he was pushing as hard at that point to to not be in a nursing home. But I still think we would have considered that differently, because that's new information. And, and, uh, and I, you know, sort of again, saying, like, if someone was listening to the podcast, they might say, well, couldn't you have foreseen that happening? And I would say, I don't know. I don't know that that's true. I don't think we had that information. And if we always plan to the worst case scenarios, the our we will, I think, inevitably, inevitably, be um, restraining liberty in cases where we could be honouring it.
1: You mentioned that um, the team were really sort of felt good when you had come to this assessment, um, using the dignity of risk and decided to let him out the first time back to his previous sort of life. Have you seen, like, much moral distress in these cases? You know, maybe some clinicians feel that, you know, particularly maybe the second time, if there was any sort of tension or um, the clinicians were sort of uncomfortable with, you know, all the decisions being made and particularly if it was sort of recurrent admissions and things like that, that can be frustrating for clinicians.
2: Yeah, I I think I hear maybe, like, two diff- two questions. So the first is, like, in these particular cases, do we have clinicians that experience moral distress? So our bioethics consultation um, model, we are consultants, we make recommendations, and we have a really strong interdisciplinary model. So the decisions that were made were made together. And I hope that I am keyed in enough to the emotions and the positions within the room that, I can say to a doctor, it looks like you're really uncomfortable with what we're saying or with this choice. Can you share with me what, you know, what your concerns are? And those concerns need to be heard. So I think when we do it together as a team, one, there is sort of this, like, dispersing of the burden, right? Everybody carries a little bit less and everybody, together we carry more and each of us carries a little bit less. Um, And um, I'm hopeful that when we do make decisions in an interdisciplinary way, that there is less, that that helps dissipate some of the moral distress of those situations. But the distress that we can't take away is that there is always an uncertainty under which we operate, right? We didn't know what was going to happen to him. And I think I mentioned in that article that I had a colleague that once had a patient that died very soon after a discharge. And she carried that with her as uh, feeling her own personal resp- that it was her personal responsibility, and I I don't know how to say this without sort of sounding casual, but I think that that is part of what this job entails. It is saying we do the best we can with the information we have, honoring a process that is thoughtful and that is replicable, and we hope that we do the right thing. And sometimes people get hurt. And sometimes people flourish. And we can't, we don't get the the magic of the crystal ball, right, to know which way it's going to go, which is why we have to be, we have to strongly adhere to our process and not say, well, my gut instinct is it makes more sense for him to be discharged, right? We don't do that. Instead, we sit down and we work through the risks and benefits. And we also try to connect Individuals with services, and allow them the choice of whether or not they participate or do that. But it wasn't just like, okay, well, we've decided to honor your um, honor your preferences. But it was okay. We've decided to honor your preferences, and here's a shelter if you want to be sheltered, and here are food banks, and here is a Metro card, and here is making sure that you still have access to your social security benefits and that nothing's happened to them while you've been in the hospital it's not um it's not like a wholesale kind of like okay go you know go fly and be free but it's fly and be free with the the best levels of support that we know to offer you under these circumstances and and I think um, Amelia your second question is do these patients that come in right so, Mr. A had 33 ED visits within, and probably I think it was like four or five admissions within that period of time, a year and a half. And there is a really strong question to say, like, what are we, this is a resource management, like a resource allocation issue, right? We have, we're spending a lot of time on him. And maybe this escal, these escalating ED visits show us that he's decompensating. And so on the At the bedside, I think what we say is maybe those visits also show us that he knows how to get help when he needs it, right? There's different ways that we can look at those visits. And then on an institutional level, we have to say, what is our commitment to the unhoused population within our community? And are we doing enough outreach and supporting our clinics are we supporting the are we forming relationships with the shelters are we forming relationships with the drop-in centers where we can think about how we can do an upstream intervention to help with the health needs of this population which are plentiful and like really catastrophic it is the the statistics of four times as likely to have hospital visits 30 years less life lived right um life expectation for people who experience chronic homelessness. So um, much higher levels of diabetes, much higher levels of hypertension. So the, the health risks are, are really, they, it is a public health issue. Um, and I don't think as institutions we can ignore that. But the question is, do we? how do we address that on an institutional level without punishing an individual patient? being part of a population that has been so marginalized and has the raw end of the deal when it comes to all the social determinants of health and is um, racially skewed and is with disproportionate levels of um, indigenous people, of black people, of people with mental illness, people with substance use disorders are so highly represented within this population. And we have a whole, we have to take a look at that and think about what what are our institutional responsibilities to our communities um, upstream? If that I think I just repeated myself, but if that makes sense.
3: It definitely makes sense. Uh, thank you for your cohesive response. And one theme that uh, I'm, I'm listening here um, as you are uh, really um, expounding on a very important topic within bioethics is intersectionality, right? Um, a word that we throw around a lot, but in this particular case, in many cases, um, intersectionality is so important because of the the social factors, right? These social determinants of health, as you said earlier, really shape a lot of the decision making capacity of patients, but also their health outcomes as well. And I'm I'm just I'm curious in regards to um, homelessness, uh, which is. Uh, area in bioethics that we really don't talk about about as much, but uh, we should because it's an increasing uh, demographic, unfortunately, with, you know, of course, the high interest rates, but uh, lack of affordability for mortgages, where foreclosures are, you know, rapidly happening as well, um, as well as um, rent evictions, you know, and of course, COVID has, Um, really showed the the fragility of housing within this country. Uh, But, of course, that happened way before COVID, but COVID really brought it out, just as many other social issues, uh, to the forefront. Uh, I'm curious of what what can hospitals do? What can hospital systems uh, do in regards to homelessness, right? We see a lot of wonderful um, corporate type of structures to do research and healthcare and to house more patients, which are needed, right? We definitely need that. But uh, are you aware of, or do you think uh, that hospital systems should also be um, involved in affordable housing around their facilities? So, you know, so that the, the, of course, inevitable health outcomes of individuals who are homeless, um, that could be alleviated somewhat based off of them simply having a roof over their head, right? Um, So I'm curious of what what are your thoughts on, um, have health systems done this in the past, uh, to your knowledge? Or if not, uh, should it be more of a priority um, moving forward?
2: So I thank you for that question. Um, I am not an expert in what health some health systems have done. I can say that our own health system has a housing at risk program that really works to help patients avoid evictions or avoid um or pay, or liaise with shelters and other departments that are serving uh, the homeless population and trying to make sure that they are that people who are experiencing homelessness are connected to services. I think every hospital should have a program and dedicated personnel to do that, and should also have personnel that can. Follow the person beyond the discharge. One of the worst parts, I think, you know, I came to I came to work in healthcare from working in the family court, and there are so many similarities. Um, it, it's part of I think why I was able to make the transition because people making it's all about people having to make huge decisions in spaces of trauma, um, with um, poor social supports, with structural racism and structural violence that are, are sort of part of that calculus. So it was surprising to me to recognize that discharge planning really sort of, it doesn't end at the door of the hospital, right? We try to get home health aids in place, we try to refer patients to particular services. But there isn't really the so the hospital social worker doesn't follow up to make sure that the patient goes to those services when they're discharged. There isn't a continuity of social work or of other individuals or nurses that follow and say, oh, yep, they made it to their appointment or they didn't make it to their appointment. I'm going to give them a call and find out and make sure everything's okay. And I think it would be A really important investment for institutions to think about how do we have someone whose responsibility it is to follow a patient from within the hospital to outside the hospital walls and how that might help with um, recidivism and the other thing that you kind of I was going to say I have a radical idea and then you said my radical idea which is that We should be supporting housing within our communities um, and using the housing first model. I'm a huge proponent of the housing first model. The numbers make sense. The evidence is really great that this is one of the number one ways to address the issue of homelessness. It's like shockingly to give people homes, right? And to not give them homes dependent on you have to be in a substance Um, use treatment disorder program or you have to show us that you're going to go to our job training program or you have to show us like instead of demanding things from people we say you have a basic human right that is not being met right you have a human right to housing and we're going to give that to you and we're going to share with you other resources and when you're ready if you're ready please participate in them. And we see great evidence that the Housing First model works. And that makes sense, right? How are we asking people to It is amazing to me that there are like that there's a category of people that are the working homeless because if I had to worry, I have the privilege of knowing that I have a home to go to every night when I leave work. If I had to worry about where I was staying or what shelter I'd be in or to bring my belongings to me, the ability to even meet my basic needs. um, If those were all resting on my shoulders every day when I went to work, I don't know how I would function. And yet there are people that do. And if we can relieve those burdens, we can free people up to engage as they wish in society. And well, I don't mean to say that people aren't engaging in society, but to engage in things, to engage in ways of helping themselves that they can't when all they're worried about is how to meet this basic need. So I would absolutely support the idea and, and be a champion for the idea of hospitals investing in housing in their neighborhoods, in, specifically in the housing first model. I think the dollars also. It's not just like this is the right thing to do. If you, there's a great article that Malcolm Gladwell wrote back in, I think it was in the 80s, called Million Dollar Murray, where he follows one individual um, and how much that person's care cost the, um, I think it was like Reno, Nevada, like the healthcare system, and basically totals up to like what if they had just paid rent on an apartment for him how much money would have been saved throughout in terms of his interactions with the carceral system his interactions with like ems the hospital all of these different things and just saying like it would have made so much more sense we would have saved so much more money and also he wouldn't have died with all the same problems that he had you know like 20 years before and Instead, we ha- we spent tons of money on services that never actually wound up benefiting him. It's a great article. I recommend it. I don't know. I didn't do it justice.
1: No, that sounds really interesting. And thank you for, um, I hadn't heard about the housing first, so I'm interested to to read more about that. Um, I think there are some health systems that have come to the realization that economically it does make sense, as you say, to kind of invest in housing to avoid you know the recurrent visits and all the other um things they would need to subsidize and kind of similar to having food pantries for patients um who are diabetic to you know help them have a proper diet so they don't end up with complications and back in the hospital so um thank you for for bringing that um to our attention well um anything else that you want to add um so it's been a really good conversation and um, thank you for all your work with patients and helping us learn about dignity of risk
2: i think the the thing that i would add is that the dignity of risk principle is not a I, i think the area of of applying it to individuals who wanted to um return to street homelessness and by you know want i'd say that that is their preference over what we are offering them might not be their preference if we were offering them an apartment, right? But, you know, over the what we're offering them, it, it comes with a tension and uncertainty that it's not, doesn't always make it easy for teams and for ethicists to use and to apply. And I, I would say, though, it comes with um, a great reward when you engage with it and really use the patient's narrative to drive how you make these assessments, and that it is also a principle that can be widely used Um for many safe discharge cases, but also um, in uh, the approach to patients with disabilities and um, patients with mental illness and patients. It's it's kind of like, once you kind of really engage with it, it is a, it's a fantastic tool. So I would highly recommend le- reading some of the literature and thinking about it more.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.